1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols, or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it on the, or, or, the, or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people." When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind, You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man, and not yet ransomed or or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering." And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year all of its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God." You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. 
You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules, and do them. I am the Lord. So far from Leviticus, let's turn now to Psalm 119. I'm going to read a few verses from that psalm, verses 1 through 17. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. So far from Psalm 119, lastly we'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And there we'll read verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So far the reading of God's Word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 15, all stanzas. 
Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, the confession of this church, and a summary of the Christian faith. We find ourselves in Lord's Day 32 on page 548 of your books of praise, if you wish to follow along. Lord's Day 32, there the question is, since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ, without any merit of our own, Why must we yet do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image, so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits, and he may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and that by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ." Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent walk of life? By no means. Scripture says that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like shall inherit the kingdom of God. So far the reading of the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the question that we're faced with in this Lord's Day is is one of the oldest and really most challenging questions to the Christian faith. It's one of the first and probably most common objections to the Christian gospel from those who hear it from the context of other religions. Uh, We can actually see, in fact, in the book of Romans, uh, that the Apostle Paul, as he's writing that letter, uh, was challenged with this very same question on many occasions. Uh, and, And the question is, why should you do good works if you're already forgiven? What benefit is there? What need is there to still live a holy life if God's grace is so free and lavish in Christ? Uh, The same question is asked today by Jews, by Muslims, by people of other faiths and religions that also see this as, as really a fundamental flaw in the Christian message. And so again, the question is, if the gospel is true, that Christ died for sinners to pay the price for their sin, to deliver them from the judgment of God so that we, we are counted as righteous in the eyes of God, then why should those sinners still care about whether or not they live a holy life? Why should they care about obedience to God? And it's a very serious question, and hopefully we can at least, at least appreciate the force of the objection. Surely it is possible, isn't it, for sinners to take the grace of God for granted and to use it as an excuse to not live a righteous life. It can be uh, enabling, at least it seems that way. Uh, and, and probably most of us have, have seen that happen to some degree or another. Perhaps maybe we've even used that very logic in our own life, that it doesn't matter how I live, I'm forgiven anyways. And we can see that this is in a very old objection uh, to the gospel. Uh, we can see that by the fact that the Apostle Paul is confronted with the same objection as he was working. Uh, he asks the same question in, in Romans 3. Uh, he says, Why not do evil that good may come of it, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? 
So evidently there were some people uh, who were making this very objection and Paul is responding to that objection. Uh, And if we're going to be fair to those who are making the objection, we should note that there are sometimes people who do this very thing, uh, who, who use the gospel to legitimize a life of sin. Uh, The letter of Jude mentions this very thing happening in Jude verse 4, where he speaks of ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Lord and Master Jesus Christ. That happens. People use the gospel, pervert it to be an excuse for sin. Uh, So unfortunately, there is some basis for this objection. There are professing Christians who do this. Uh, Indeed, if we're going to be sympathetic to uh, our Muslim uh, accusers here, we should recognize that many of them look at Canada or look at the United States as uh, presumably professingly Christian countries, uh, and they see all the immorality that takes place in our countries, and they say, see, see, that's what the message of Christ, uh, the Christian message does. It makes people careless. It makes them wicked. You can't just give God's grace away for free like that. So is the charge legitimate that, that the gospel leads to lawlessness? It is at least an objection we take seriously. And that's the question then the Catechism also asks. Since we've been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ, without any merit of our own, why should we still do good works? Now before answering uh, the... uh, Before we, we delve into the answer, you might ask yourself... How would you respond to that question? If you don't look at the way the Catechism answers it yet, uh, what's your instinctive response to that question? Uh, If you're forgiven anyway, why should you do good works? How would you respond to that? Well, the, the answer that you might expect to hear the Catechism give is some sort of threat. Right? You, you sort of expect that. Uh, some sort of consequence where if you don't do this, then you'll be judged. Some, uh, some answer that goes along the lines of if you don't do good works, then maybe God won't forgive you or, or maybe something else. Some sort of consequence. But that is not the answer that the Catechism gives. Instead, what the Catechism does is it goes back to the Gospel itself. Uh, back to what Christ has done. Uh, And and it does that because the Catechism recognizes that if you're asking that question, why should I do good works, you probably haven't understood the Gospel. Uh, If you're asking, why do I have to be holy if I'm forgiven anyways? Or why do I have to be righteous if I'm going to heaven anyways? Then you probably have not understood the Gospel. So here's the big idea, and I'll state it, and then we'll, we'll uh, work to unpack it. Uh, here's the big idea the Catechism gives. Christ died and rose to save us, and to save us not just, not just from the judgment our sins deserve, but from the sins themselves. I'll say it again. Christ died and He rose to save us, not just from the consequences of our sin, that's hell, judgment, the punishment of God. Christ died to save us not just from that, but also from the sin itself. Uh, or, Or to put it another way, Christ died and rose not just to deliver us from hell, 
but to heal our hearts, to change us, to make us into new people, to save us from the people that we were. That's the, God, uh, that's the gospel message. God looked down on a broken, sinful world. Sinners hating God, hating one another. And God had compassion on them. And instead of condemning them, He saved them from their guilt and He determined to also save them from who they were, to renew them, to make them a new people. And so although it is, it is wonderfully true that, that Christ died for sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous, to rescue us from hell, to bring us to heaven, although that is wonderfully true, it is half of the gospel. It's half of the gospel. Christ, uh, God's purpose in sending Christ to die and, and rise for us is not just to forgive us, but to change us, to restore us to righteousness. Not just to uh, bring us into heaven, but to make us into a people who belong in heaven. Uh, to put it somewhat crudely, um, God did not just, uh, God's purpose was not just to, to save uh, us, uh, us unrighteous sinners, to deliver us from our guilt so that we could go on for the rest of eternity in heaven, hating, what, uh, hating God and hating one another. That, that was not God's purpose. Uh, no, it is to, to, to change us, to bring an end to sin, to, to reconcile us to God, to restore us, and then to take us from being evil, corrupt, idolatrous, hateful sinners uh, who, who were headed for judgment, and, and not only to forgive us, but then to heal us, to make us into a new people. Uh, listen to how the Apostle Paul, or, or sorry, the Apostle Peter says it in uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Uh, He says, Christ Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that... And can you guess what might come next? You might expect so that we could be forgiven. But He says, Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Christ died to heal us, to save us from ourselves. There's the gospel message then. He died not just to forgive you, but to to heal you, to save you from yourself. Now, I I belabor this point, um, and I hope you'll forgive me for that, but I belabor it because I know how easy it is for us to forget this and then to get the gospel all upside down in our heads uh, during the course of the Christian life, uh, where either we ignore the call to holiness, thinking that all that matters is being forgiven, so we ignore the call to holiness, or uh, on the other side, we, because we want to grow in holiness, we beat ourselves over the head with threats and with judgments, hoping that that's going to work to make us into a more holy people. And it doesn't work that way. If you're forgiven, you're forgiven for the sake of holiness. And if you want to grow in holiness, the only way to do so is by resting in God's forgiveness. Uh, and, and then if you're thinking, well, no, no, I don't, I don't distort the gospel that way in my head. I rest in God's forgiveness. Well, good. Do you then also show the same grace and patience and gospel good sense with others? 
Uh, Do we sometimes beat one another over the head with threats and judgments uh, instead of holding together grace and the call to holiness in one hand? They must belong together. How often do we both rest and rejoice in the forgiveness and the calling that God has given us, seeing them both as a gift from God? How often do we thank God for the gift, not just of forgiveness, but for the gift of new life and healing that He offers us in Christ? How often do we recognize that both of those are God's gift? It's not that one is a gift, God's forgiveness, and the other is what we must do. Uh, No, both are God's gift. Uh, Yes, the the, the call to holiness does involve some working, uh, some effort on our part. We do have responsibility there, but that is done out of the strength, as we saw this morning, out of the strength that God supplies. Uh, If we grow at all, we grow by God's grace. It's what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 12, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's God's gift that you grow in holiness. It's God's gift as part of the gift of the gospel. And so the glory of the gospel then is Christ declares to us, I forgive you and I will heal you. I will change you. I will make you new. This is exactly what we read in the text that uh, we read earlier from Ephesians 2, uh, a whole chapter that's just breathless in describing God's grace to sinners, how deep God's mercy is for sinners. Uh, And you'll notice the focus in chapter 2, it's still on God's grace, but it's on God's grace in changing us. Not just God's grace in forgiving. So Paul says, you were, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of my, and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, here he's describing God's mercy, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's a gift from God. He's not talking even there about forgiveness, though that's part of the package. But God's mercy, he says, is that you who were dead have been made alive. In Christ, you who were enslaved to sin have been set free in Christ. Uh, salvation is not just being forgiven, it's dead people being made alive. Uh, and, and that is God's grace. He, he, he really emphasizes that. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. All of it is grace. Uh, and all of it, both the forgiveness and the renewal, all of it is to be received from God by faith. That is, by trusting in the promises of God in Christ. Uh, so the Christian then who is, who is bought by Christ's blood has the great privilege of both resting and working. Both resting and working. And even the working is part of the resting. 
You don't grow in holiness unless you're resting in God's grace. Uh, It's resting in the forgiveness that Christ has bought for us by His blood, enjoying being the child of God, and rejoicing in the calling that God has given us by His grace to forsake the old man, that old, bitter, vengeful, lustful person I once was. I get to forsake that, and I get to be someone new. The whole Christian life is God's grace. Now, I'm emphasizing this as well right now because in a couple of weeks, uh, we're in Lord's Day 32 now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be heading into the Ten Commandments. Uh, And as we do that, we're going to need to be keenly aware of the danger that is before us as we study the Ten Commandments, the danger of getting the Gospel mixed up in our heads. As we hear what God commands of us, we're going to be tempted to think uh, that, okay, now this is what I must do to be worthy of God's grace. But that's nonsense. It's nonsense to think that. Uh, If you were worthy of it, it wouldn't be grace, would it? And that's why the Ten Commandments themselves begin with God's grace. uh, So that we would see that the whole of the Ten Commandments is grace and life. Now, the Ten Commandments begin with these gracious words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's grace. And so then when we get to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods but me, is that suddenly not God's grace anymore? No, of course not. Both the preface to the law and the first commandment and the second commandment and all the other uh, commandments afterwards are God's grace. It's God's grace that He is our God and we get to have no other gods beside Him because we know that those gods are lies and delusions that enslave us and rob our life from us. Every other god is death. That's why God commands us, have no other gods but me. It's grace. Now we get a glimpse of this as well in in the text that we read from uh, Leviticus 19. It's a beautiful chapter, just rich with with that calling to new life. If we're ever accustomed to thinking of Leviticus as just a book of dry laws, uh, we should take a fresh look at, at that book. Consider the beauty of God's laws. Uh, The whole of that chapter, uh, Leviticus 19, is marked by the repeating phrase. You heard it over and over. I am the Lord your God. It's there in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 25, 28, 30, 31, 32, 34, 36, and verse 37, in case you didn't get the message. Uh, And in between that constant reminder, I am the Lord your God, uh, is a a description of the beautiful, renewed, righteous life that God calls us to. Uh, How to rest and worship. How to take care of the poor in our midst. How to deal honestly and faithfully in business. How to be kind and fair to our neighbor and to our employees. How to deal justly in in court. How to be merciful and honorable towards the deaf and the blind. How How to defend your neighbor in public. How to love your neighbor. 
from the heart, how did it to, to honor and preserve the purity of, of your, yourself and your, your wife and your neighbor's wife uh, and the marriage bed and, and on and on it goes. This is what the beautiful, renewed, sanctified life looks like. It's a beautiful chapter and, and here's the point uh, in Leviticus 19, it's all God's grace. God wasn't teaching Israel, this is what you have to do now to earn my favor He was showing them, this is the beauty of a life that is lived under my favor. I am the Lord, your God. Uh, There's this strange view of of the law that has arisen uh, recently in some Reformed and Presbyterian circles uh, that argues that the whole of the the law, its its primary purpose is just there to condemn. That that when God gave the Ten Commandments, uh, He was, it's called the republication of of the the covenant of works is is how this is described. And it's God setting up a, a hypothetical scenario where Israel could earn God's favor. Uh, and the idea is if, if they were just to keep the law, then they would uh, earn God's favor. And God did that to show them that they couldn't, that they would ultimately fail. But it's, it's a very twisted view of the law. Uh, the law was not given, though the law does condemn, it does function as a mirror by which we see our sin and flee to Christ. The law was not given, first of all, for that purpose. It was given by grace. It was given as a way of life. Uh, that wasn't even the case with Adam and Eve. When, when we speak of the first so-called covenant of, of, of works, uh, they were given eternal life. They didn't have to earn it. It wasn't something they had to work for to attain. It was given to them by grace. And you think of Adam and Eve in the garden, and God lavishly gives them all of the trees of the garden with only one tree that's forbidden. They weren't there to earn anything. They were there to live under God's grace, by God's grace, in obedience to God. Uh, So it was also with Moses from beginning to end. The law is God's gift. All of the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the temple, these were visual depictions of the grace of God in the gospel. The, The sacrifices there depicting the death of Christ for our sins by which we are made holy, a people redeemed for the Lord. And that's why uh, when, when the uh, Old Testament saints spoke of the law, they spoke of it in such glowing terms. Uh, King David, when he wrote Psalm 119, uh, it seems to be just bursting in praise and love for the, the law of God. Uh, he saw God's law and, uh, and he saw the beauty and wonder of God's grace there written in, in God's law. That's how we should also see it. You might ask as well, what about Paul? Doesn't Paul speak of the law as something that condemns, that the law came to expose sin? Well, yes, it, it, it does condemn. It condemns those who are trying to earn God's favor. Those are the people the law condemns. Those who think that they could ever earn God's favor. It condemns those who live by works and not by faith. It condemns those who fail to see in the law God's grace. That's what Paul says in Romans 9, verse verse 32. He says, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. 
His point is, that's not how the law was supposed to be received. It wasn't supposed to be lived uh, as, as a way to become righteous by yourself. It was supposed to be lived by faith. Uh, So it was in the Old Testament, so it is in the New. To those who live by faith, the transition from the Old Testament to the New is a transition from life to life. From life to greater life. Uh, And to those who live by works, by self-righteousness and pride, believing they can earn God's favor, it's a transition from death to death. The only real difference there between, in this respect between the Old and New Testament is that what was then proclaimed as grace under shadows is now proclaimed as grace in its full reality. And where the Spirit was then at work in a few bringing them to life, the Spirit is now at work in the many, continuing even now to be poured out on all the nations of the earth. Uh, so then, back to our question then, as we think about the law here, how do we approach this call to holiness that we find in the law, this call to righteousness? Well, the way that we approach it is the way the Scriptures teach us to approach it, and that is by faith as a gift of grace. The way that the Gospel of Christ presents this call is it's a call of grace. Uh, both the mercy that God has shown us in the death of Christ and the calling that God has given us in the resurrection of Christ are both God's gift of grace to be received by faith. Do not receive it as a work that must be done to earn Christ. Receive it instead as part of the healing that God has in store for you in Christ. Uh, and this is also why we, when, we, when we look at the law as we're going to be doing, we live this out, uh, by, not, not in our own strength, but by the power of the Spirit of Christ at work in us. If God were to only forgive us uh, and then leave us uh, from that point on, call us to holiness, but leave us to our own strength to achieve uh, that holiness, uh, none of us could ever be changed. Left to ourselves, Wickedness and rebellion is all we know how to do. So, so Christ, having died for us to forgive us, also pours out His Spirit on us to empower us for change. To change us from within. And the only way to live that beautiful and righteous, holy life to which God calls us is to live by the power of the Spirit. He and He alone can change us. He and He alone can heal us from the corruption of sin. And He does. The Spirit does. As we keep in step with the Spirit, constant in prayer, as we saw this morning, leaning upon God in prayer, we experience the Spirit's healing and renewing power. Ugly things that we used to enjoy, we learn to despise. Sinful pleasures that we used to hold on to, we now forsake. God's law, which once appeared to us as as dry and stifling and burdensome, now appears to us, as it did to David, as sweet and life-giving and precious. 
Our, our affections, our desires change. And with them, our lives also then change. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Uh, I better get this right. Uh, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. I miss gentleness again. I tend to do that. Um, I don't know if that uh, <laughs> says something about me. Um, but this fruit of the Spirit, as, as, as this God gives the Spirit to us, the fruit of the Spirit... Um, wells up in our hearts and leads to a life that is lived by the Spirit's power. Uh, and, and, it, and the Spirit changes us in all the different areas of our life, in our work, in our home, uh, in our life together as a church. The Spirit lives among us. All of this is grace. All of this is healing. And all of this is by the power of the Spirit. Now that is not to say, we'll close on this, that is not to say that there are no threats in the New Testament or in the law of God. There certainly are. You find them in the Old and the New Testament. And that's why the Catechism asks this question, can those who who refuse to turn to God from an impenitent, ungrateful uh, walk of life, can they still be saved? And the answer is no, by no means, certainly not. Scripture says that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, robber, uh, slanderer, or the like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And that's a quote, by the way, from the New Testament, not just the Old. Now you say, but how does that jive with what we've just said, that this is all by grace and that our works earn nothing? Well, it's actually very simple. It is all by grace. Those whom God forgives, He also changes. He also heals. But though that grace is offered in the gospel to the whole world, it is not received by the whole world. Neither the forgiveness of Christ nor the healing of Christ. They come together as one package. Those who who prefer to persist in a life of sin and rebellion, what they demonstrate is they have no part in Christ, not in His resurrection and therefore also not in His death. They persist in the hardness of heart. They choose sin and and evil uh, instead of weeping for their sin and evil and finding grace and healing and change in Christ. Uh, those, Those most obviously, most evidently have no share in Christ or in the kingdom of God. The point of saying that is not to say, uh, though, it's not to say, well, now, therefore, make sure you do this X, Y, Z, and the next thing, uh, lest you be removed from God's grace. No, the point is, flee to Christ. There's no forgiveness and no healing apart from Him. Those who turn to Him in true faith, in genuine repentance from sin, will find in Him not only the grace for forgiveness, but also the power and life for healing. Those two things always come together. Now that gospel message, it probably will continue to be mocked and maligned and misunderstood by the world. Now the world will probably continue to say this is the fundamental flaw of Christianity and continue to encourage, uh, or sorry, to continue to accuse the gospel of encouraging a life of, of lawlessness and, and wickedness. But the answer to that accusation is not for us to, to double down on the law, nor to water down the grace. Rather, it is to show the world, as Christ taught us to do, to show the world the beautiful lives that the gospel brings, the good works that the gospel produces that flow from the grace of God. 
Let the world see the fruit of the Spirit. As Christ said, let your light, uh, which is really His light in you, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. As Peter says, we've seen him uh, say this in our work in Peter, uh, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's what we also read uh, earlier from Ephesians 2. You are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Christ saved you in order to heal you. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing together from Psalm 119, stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 5.